This is the Veterinary Life Coach Podcast with Dr. Julie Capel, episode number 64. Welcome to the podcast. Today we are going to have a guest on the podcast, which makes me very excited because I love to interview people and hear about their lives. This person is a coach and a veterinarian for many years, and she's a fascinating person, has lots of interests, and I just thought that she would be fabulous to have on the podcast because she's got such an interesting background and perspective on veterinary life and also life coaching, which you know I love. So let's talk to a friend, Dr. Gail Walter. All right. So today we've got a podcast with Dr. Gail Walter, and I'm really excited to have her on the podcast. I think that we will get some great information from her. Welcome, Gail. Well, thank you, Julie. Um, It's an honor to be here on your podcast. So I think we'll have fun doing this. Yeah, I'm just so excited. Gail and I met at the Michigan Veterinary Conference a couple months ago, right? And um, we just talked for a little bit and she gave me her background, and um, so I thought she would be a great person to have. So I'm excited to have you. So, Gail, can you tell us just kind of a little bit about yourself? Um, oh, let me think. Um, <laughs> just briefly, like I can ask you questions about your background, but if you would just yeah. want to give me like a brief, you know, what what's your background, what do you do, that kind of thing? Um, well, at this point, I'm um, pretty much retired or semi-retired from... Um, doing my veterinary career, and uh, it gives me time to pursue and and uh, uh, follow the rest of the things in my life that I'm really interested in. So, you know, background-wise, I, like a lot of uh, veterinarians, grew up in a really small town, and um, I know with a vague idea of going into some kind of a science feel since my dad was a biology teacher and my mom was a nurse that kind of set me up for um, being interested in in biology and uh, so I my first degree in college um, I have a, a bachelor's in medical technology which is kind of you know combining doing something with your hands and doing something with your head at the same time so that really fit Uh, fit me well and I did that for a few years and then I decided to go to veterinary school and um, I did that and uh, practiced for about five years and doing a lot of emergency practice um, which I really enjoyed and then I eventually my whole goal all along was to combine my medical technology background with veterinary medicine and uh, go into clinical pathology. So I did that and uh, worked in the pharmaceutical field for quite a few years, um, most of which I've worked as a consultant. And uh, now I've kind of been able to expand into some other areas of interest. So anyway, that's that's my veterinary background. Okay. So what made you decide to go from medical technology to veterinary medicine? Like, was that always the plan or was that something you decided after you started working as a medical technologist? 
Well, it wasn't always the plan. Um, the plan was, you know, at one point maybe to go to medical school. And, but as, at, at one point in my life when I was working as a medical technologist, I, I kind of had some um, personal changes and crisis. And I decided I needed to throw myself into something that was, you know, pretty challenging and, uh, and so I used, I, I knew a lot about human medicine since I'd been working in a children's hospital for a while. And I decided I didn't really know as much about veterinary medicine. So I thought that was going to be a lot more challenging. So, um, okay. so um, I decided to apply to vet school and, um, and that's how I ended up in vet school. That not necessarily the best reason to go to vet school is of <laughs> your own personal um, demons, but uh, that's what got me there. Okay, but did you have an interest in animals? Is that why you picked that over human medicine? Um, yes, I did. I've always had an interest in animals, <laughs> and um, I just decided that you know human medicine wasn't all that challenging. I felt I already you know was pretty well inundated with human medicine and. You know, they only deal with one species, and I thought, well, that's, you know, how hard could that be? You know, so I just thought veterinarians. <laughs> so it was all about the challenge, huh? <laughs> yeah, and the veterinarians are, are a lot more well-rounded, and human medicine is just kind of a specialty of veterinary medicine. That's funny. I've never heard anybody describe it that way, but that's pretty fascinating. It doesn't go over real well when I describe that to human medicine. Human I'm sure not. I'm sure so human dumb. doctors get a little insulted by that. <laughs> it depends on their sense of humor. Yeah. So after you got your DVM, you went into an emergency practice. Is that right? Yes, I did emergency uh, medicine for oh, probably about four or five years. So tell me about that. What was your experience there? I really like doing emergency medicine. I think I'm kind of an adrenaline junkie. So okay. that really, um, uh, you know, I, I liked um, being able to see something different uh, all the time and be able to really um, think on your feet and the fact that, uh, you know, when, some, when, when your shift was over at eight o'clock in the morning and, um, you know, the animals left uh, to go back to their regular veterinarians or or to go back home, um, and then you didn't have to deal with the, the chronic aftermath, you know, the derm cases and having to do orthopedic surgery. You know, you could, you could send that back out and, uh, and know that the, the patient was going to be well taken care of, you know, after you were done. So, so I really like that of being able to triage and stabilize a patient and then so you weren't you weren't all about the chronic relationships with the with the clients. It was more of a let's take let's get this challenge, let's get it over with, and then let's pass it back to the day right. practices. Okay, right. One That's thing I realized doing emergency medicine, um, especially because I'm I'm kind of a, a small stature female, um, and you know at that time especially I I I looked I looked pretty young even though I was in my 30s. So what I learned is. There, you need to have a way to be able to connect with people in about two or three minutes um, because they're in a, a situation where there's a lot of emotion. They're really distraught. They're panicked. Their pet is obviously, um, you know, hurt or seriously ill. 
and they don't know who you are. You know, you're not somebody they've seen before. You're not their trusted regular veterinarian. And it, it takes a, a little bit of, I think, experience to be able to learn how to connect with people in a way that it eases a lot of the anxiety that they have. Okay. So if you had to speak to other veterinarians, because that's kind of what we're doing right now, what would be, would that be the lesson that you would tell them to learn from the whole emergency medicine thing? Or is there some sort of lesson that you learned from being an emergency uh, veterinarian? Is there something valuable? I, I think that that is the lesson of learning how to put people at ease. And I think maybe this you know, probably applies to, you know, any veterinarian in practice, um, because I did, in addition to the veterinary or the emergency clinic, I did a lot of relief work. So it also put me in a situation where I was not the regular veterinarian. And um, to just understand that, you know, people are there because they care deeply about their animal. And that, you know, to sort of check your own ego at the door thing and meet people where they're at. Yeah, I think that's really a good, I I think that's something that we need to keep in mind because sometimes we kind of get in that mindset of we have to save all the animals. We have, the clients have to do exactly what we think they should do. And sometimes they don't make the choices that we think are right. And I think that adds to our stress. You know, I think you got a good point. Yeah, yeah that, that we have this judgment of the decisions that they make, whether they're financial or health-wise or they waited too long or, you know, all the things that we go into judgment about. And I think that really adds to our stress. And I think if we can keep in mind that, you know, these, we just have to meet them where they are and do our best for, for the client and the patient rather than judging the client's decisions, I think that will take away a lot of the angst that we have, you know. And I think the emergency veterinarians feel that more than maybe the day practice vets because we kind of have a relationship with people and maybe we can understand them more. Mm -hmm. But I just see that out there a lot when I'm reading things on Facebook and all the veterinary groups is that we take on so much stress from the clients that we don't really need to take on, you know, because of the way we think about them and their decisions. So I I think you make a really good point kind of by meeting them where they are. Right. At least I think the other take oh the other take home message I, I had from working as an emergency veterinarian was that uh, I'm not I'm not clairvoyant and I cannot predict how a case is going to turn out. Um, and you know, of course people want to know what, what the chances their pet has, what are their prognosis. And what I've learned is that there were cases that I wouldn't have given a plug nickel for, but I would always tell the, the clients, I, I will do my absolute best, 110%, and the rest is up to the, to the animal. And there were cases that I never would have predicted would have pulled through, and they did. Um, so I learned that I don't know everything, and there's a lot more into, um, you know, the, the, the turnaround or the the healing um, and the recovery of an animal than than I will ever be able to understand. Yeah, and I think that's really something that we need to keep in mind because we don't know what's going to happen. 
and it's difficult. It causes a lot of stress, I think, to a lot of us that are perfectionists and we think we need to know everything or we should know everything, but we really don't. And you know, I've had some cases the same that I thought for sure weren't going to make it and they do or vice versa, ones you think that are going to do great and they go down the tubes. So I, I just think that's something that we have to learn to accept with this job. So you said you were in emergency for about five years. Is that right? Yeah. So why did you decide to go into the clinical pathology? Just because it combined your medical technology or what was the, what was the, right. that was the goal um, all along when I, even when I was in vet school was to combine the two of them and timing wise, um, it worked out that about the time I was thinking about um, making some changes, I got a call from uh, someone at um, in the pathology department, the head of the pathology department, and for whatever reasons, um, their whole uh, attempt to uh, recruit residents um, fell through. They didn't they didn't get an ad posted in time or, you know, something happened and they had this open position and I had worked at, when I was in vet school, I had worked as a medical technologist in the vet school as well as some other places. So um, I knew the folks there and when they had this opening and they knew my plan was eventually to go back, I got a call that says, you know, if you're thinking about coming back, this would be a really good time to do it. So I, I got very lucky and basically walked into my residency. Yeah. So a door opened and you went through it. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Okay. Uh, I, I was, I was quite fortunate. Yeah. And so then what was your experience with all that? Is, it, did you become board certified? Is that? Yes. I'm board certified in clinical pathology and in toxicology. Oh, Okay. And so what was your experience with all that? You did that for how many years? I did that for, um, well, the pathology program, you know, of course, was a three-year residency. Um, and then when I got done, I worked, oh, let me think here. I worked starting in um, 1993. That was a long time ago for some people. It seems like yesterday for me. But I know, um, right? <laughs> the older you get, the the more recent it seems, right? I know. So anyway, I've i worked as a veterinary clinical pathologist since that time, and, and as I said, I'm I'm pretty much winding down um, at this point in time and not taking on very much more work. But you're still doing it. I will if the right thing comes along. Okay. So it's not your full-time gig anymore. <laughs> no, it's, I don't even have a full-time gig anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Which is kind of nice, right? Yeah. Tell me a little bit about, because you're also a coach. Yes. And a personal yes. trainer. Which I find fascinating. I could use your services as a personal trainer, <laughs> but and you know I'm into life coaching, so I'm excited. Right. I'm excited that you're a coach. So tell me how that how that evolved. How well, did you, how did you go from um, being a toxicologist point, and oh, how did right. It um, well, I had a, a bit of a slower time in my in my consulting practice. I think maybe it was the downturn, you know, and the 20, you know, the 2008, 2008. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I've been, I'm kind of a big advocate of being physically active and uh, healthy. And so there was an opportunity I saw to 
um, go through a program in personal training. And since I liked working out in a gym and I'd worked with a lot of personal trainers, I thought this would be great and that um, that there would probably be a market for someone who is middle-aged as a personal trainer because you know we don't always want to work with somebody who's 20 um, right. as a personal trainer. They don't understand necessarily all the um, old joints and aches and pains that <laughs> we have. Um, so I got, I got certified as a personal trainer and um, kind of made a half-hearted effort to find a job. But my personal training certificate is, um, is the uh, American Council of Exercise. So it's, it's a good um, credential, but I don't have a degree in exercise physiology or exercise science. And so the places that I would find um, that would um, even consider me with my credentials, it just didn't really pan out. And I'm not also the, being a veterinarian, a lot of us are a bit on the introverted side. Yes. And so <laughs> I found promoting myself you know, as a personal trainer was, uh, was uh, really outside of my comfort zone. So I never really worked as a personal trainer. Got, I've never got paid to work as a personal trainer. I guess I, I could say that. I had some um, people that I worked with, just a volunteer or my practice clients, but that kind of opened a door for me, opened a path to coaching. So I thought, well, the personal training thing, you know, maybe just being a gym rat, you know, hanging out in the gym, maybe that's really not my true calling. And, but it got me thinking about um, wellness coaching, health and wellness coaching. So um, when I had a bit more time and when I was, you know, ready to come up from, you know, come up for air from my microscope and look at something else, uh, that's what I decided to do. Okay. So how did you run across that? Like, where did the, cause it, it's, it's wellness coaching, it's life coaching. Right. And so how did you discover that? How long ago was that? Oh, let me think. I got trained, I think in around 2010. Okay. So, yeah. Um, so I just, I just started looking at different programs for coaching for health and wellness coaching. And, and I knew I did not, want to go through a program where I got any more degrees. I, right. I didn't want to go back to school. I didn't want a master's in coaching. I didn't want to enroll in a university. I wanted a, a certificate program. Right. And so um, the, the program that I ran across, across that, that seemed to resonate with me is called Well Coaches. And um, uh, it, it was founded by a uh, person who had been in the pharmaceutical industry and she became a coach. And so it's a, it's a pretty well-established program and has trained uh, many coaches now uh, internationally. And uh, so I got a basic certification and then went on to get a professional level certification. And now there has been um, just in the last uh, several years, a national um, certification program for health and wellness coaches. And so I went through that um, certification process. So now I can say that I'm a national board certified health and wellness coach. Wow, that's pretty cool. That sounds really good. What, do you, what appeals to you about being a health and wellness coach, beside the fact that you personally think that's important? What, 
what part of coaching, like I, I enjoy coaching so much. I love it. And I love being coached as well. So what appeals to you about being a coach? What do you think it brings? Um, well, I, um, I, I really like connecting with people and feeling like I can help people get to, you know, that yes thing, you know, where they're, they've been struggling with something and, and you can see that the light bulb goes off and, and they start to feel empowered and they have a success, which then leads to another success, which then leads to another success. And it's also fun to, um, you know, see the layers unravel because, and this may be your experience as a coach um, as well, but, you know, you start working with somebody and um, what they bring to the table during the first session or two is not really what's going on. Right. So There's, there are layers. The, you get to see the layers. So somebody will say, well, I, you know, I'd really, I'd really like to, you know, lose a few pounds and I'm, you know, kind of out of shape. And, and so you start to work with that and you find out, well, they're, you know, they're, they've been overeating, you know, because, and then you find out why they've been overeating. And so one thing leads to another and you get to, you know, all health and wellness coaching, as you alluded to, really is life coaching because once exactly. you get once you get through the layers, that's what it comes down to. So I I love working with people who are in transition or who are stuck. I've done some coaching around what's called immunity to change, and um, and how our own um, fear or patterns are basically serve as an immune system and keep us from changing. And so to get underneath that immune system that keeps us from making the change that we want to make. Um, and it, it's just sort of a fascinating path to walk with somebody. Yeah. And just the, what's fascinating to me about coaching is just the power of your brain and how, you know, this is, this all goes back to just the way we think about things and how powerful your brain can be because you don't really think that that's the, source of your problem until you start really digging into it with somebody else to show you, you know, the way you're thinking and your patterns. And, you know, that's what I find fascinating is how strong our brain is and how difficult sometimes it is to dig your way out of the way you think. Yeah, I agree. So it's, it's fun to, to work with somebody on that. And, um, and sometimes to really get past that thinking part is to is to get them to connect with with really what they're feeling. Um, exactly. As, as veterinarians, you know, we tend to be thinkers right. um, when we live in our heads a lot, and um, sometimes we just need to to break through that. Yeah, and the feelings are what causes us to act the way we do. You know, mm -hmm. it's all really interesting. So if you had to give advice, let's say, to um, the younger veterinarians out there as a veterinarian and possibly as a life and fitness coach, what would one of your best pieces of advice be? Do you have one that you consider key? Because mm. we all know this is a really tough career. And yeah. You know, it, it, it causes a lot of stress and anxiety. We're super busy. 
Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard to plan your day. There's, there's a lot of, of downsides to it. Yeah. Uh, can you think of like kind of one or two key pieces of advice that you can give to vets as they're navigating, you know, these bad days or good days even? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, you know, I've thought about that. Um, and I, I don't know that there's one piece of advice um, that would, that would resonate for everybody. Right. But, yeah, but I have a, I have a couple of, of caveats, I guess that okay. I could share. Sure. Um, so one is no expectations, no assumptions, no regrets. That's kind of my personal motto. Okay. And, Explain um, that to me. I like that. Yeah. So if I think it's to keep an open mind and we all work with assumptions about situations or people or things like we interpret what somebody else may say or what somebody else might do or what the situation is um, as an assumption. And a lot of times our assumptions are not really spot on. And so by assuming something, we create more stress in our heads because it's like, oh, she must have said it like that because um, she's mad at me or I did something to irritate her or she doesn't like me. And when you realize, you know, if you, if you make that assumption, you might be so wrong because maybe that person just lost their job or just found out that their mother was diagnosed with a, you know, serious health problem. And you don't know what is going on for another person to assume that their response to you has anything at all to do with you. Right. Um, And the expectation part, if we expect Um, somebody to behave in a certain way or we expect a situation to turn out a lot of different uh, different than it may turn out we're setting ourselves up for disappointment and for um, um, and for more stress in our lives so to not expect really what but to stay open and to you know be an observer of a situation and um Find out what you know what the universe brings to you instead of expecting uh, that somebody is going to behave or the universe is going to is going to do a particular manifest in a particular way and it, it usually doesn't and if you don't expect something you don't you're not disappointed and that sort of leads to the no regrets if you make the choices based on the information that you have at the time um, when you're trying to make a decision there's nothing to regret about the outcome. Because you really can't control a lot of the outcome. The only thing you can control is your own decision, your own um, expectations, and your own assumptions. Um, and if you can control those things, there's nothing to regret. Hey, so, so, that's my, so that's my you know, caveat number one. Um, and number two is um, work-life balance is way overrated. There is no such thing as work-life balance. Yeah, I kind of agree with you. I always, I always try to think of it more as like harmony. Is how do you harmonize your work and life? Yeah. Well, I think of it more as stability. Okay. Um, I'm one of the one of the pastimes that I have is um, I'm a I'm a sculler. I um, I row a lot, and if you are trying to balance a boat, you know you're on this boat that's less than a foot wide and it's twenty five feet long. If you try to balance the boat, it's kind of like chasing a ghost. You know, it's always going to be rocking back and forth. 
because you have to provide the stability for the boat. If you are stable, your boat is going to be stable and it's going to be in balance. And so the balance in your life um, is that it's fleeting and you go through it in between those extremes. So there are times in your life when your, your family is going to need more attention. Uh, maybe one child is going to need more attention than, than others. Um, there are times when your career or your job is going gonna, is gonna to take the center stage and going to need more attention because maybe you're short-staffed at work or you know, there's some unexpected changes at work. Maybe you're in the sandwich generation where you've got to take care of some older parents as well. And just to know that these, these things, it's not the end of the world. You know, when you need to pay attention to your family, when that's most important, then do that. Um, and, and don't expect every day to be in balance between your, your personal life and your job life and, um, you know, other things. But it will all come into balance over the long run, that's sort of the difference between weather and climate. The weather changes every day. And we just hope, we just certainly hope these days that the climate is stable. Um, and so not to be stressed about being stressed. Yeah. And that, that rings so true to me. I mean, the, just the way you explain it by the stability and the fact that if your family needs you, then the work will still be there when you get back. I mean, I say that to my team a lot. It's like, if you have a family situation, just go and just deal with it. That's what the rest of us are here for. And then when we have a family problem, then you'll be there for us and not stressing over that, you know, not if you're sick, stay home and those kind of things. And I think that those are really hard things for veterinarians and people that work in our profession to realize is that there are other people that will pick up the slack when you have to pick up the slack of your family and, and not to feel guilty about that and not to be stressed about that. So mm -hmm. I love your example with the, with the boat. That's, that's really, that's really it, it just rings true, you know, that if you're rocking back and forth and you're trying to make everything balanced, it's not going to work. Yeah, there's a lot of um, life analogies that come from rowing a boat. One of these days, I'll have to write a blog about it. <laughs> yeah, you should. Or, or maybe we'll just do another podcast and we can talk all sure. about work-life balance because I think that's oh, really, it's such, a big, such a big topic right now. Everybody talks about it and it's, it's such a hard concept to you know, get people to, to try to not be so focused on the fact that you have to spend half your time with your family. And then when you're not there, you feel guilty. And, you know, that kind of back and forth thing that we all mentally go through. So I don't know. It's, that was just a really good way of putting it, I think. Oh, well, thank like, you. I like that. Yeah, it's cool. So what else do you, oh, I know what I wanted to ask you about before we get too far towards the end. Um, you were telling me when we were at the MVC about your work with the Audubon. Mm -hmm. Want to talk a little bit about that? I thought that was really interesting. Sure. Um, this is definitely the kind of the interest that is taking center stage for me right now. So I've, I've been a, you know, I enjoy being a birder and I've been involved with our local Audubon group for quite a long time. And we are fortunate enough in Kalamazoo, which is where I am to um, have peregrine falcons that have decided to take up residence here in our city. 
from, you know, one thing leads to another and uh, we have a nest box for the, the peregrine falcons uh, because they were trying to lay eggs in the gutter, which wasn't very successful for hatching eggs. <laughs> um, and so they've been very successful for uh, a number of years. We have a, a website and a webcam. You can watch them live 24-7. And I am the coordinator um, of the the peregrine activity. So I'm kind of the the hub of the wheel between the birds and the the DNR and the website and the building owners and the public and um, uh, whoever else tends to be involved. And so that's been a lot of fun. We should have eggs any day now. Uh, birds have been mating. But that led me into another area that I'm quite um, passionate about. Um, as we all know, we've we're we've really lost a lot of our bird population over the last several decades. And there's a lot of reasons for that. They're multifactorial, certainly habitat loss and climate change are, are big ones. And um, collisions with buildings are another big reason that a lot of birds die. So uh, the birds can't see glass any more than people can. And people walk into glass all the time, but usually not hard enough to kill themselves. But birds are flying pretty fast, and we have more and more buildings that have a lot of large, expansive windows. And I know we've all had the experience at home of maybe hearing or seeing a bird hit one of our windows and, and maybe perishing and maybe not. And so it's been something I've been aware of for a long time and would think, okay, you know, when I'm between jobs or I've got time or when I retire. In your I'm, spare time, right? <laughs> in my spare time. I'm like you don't have enough to do. This a little bit more. But uh, a few years ago, um, one of our young peregrine falcons died from flying into a window uh, a block from his nest box. Oh, that's um, tragic. It was tragic because um, I this bird had fledged early, um, had done okay. Hey, we picked him up. I brought him to rehab. He he learned how to fly at flight school. Did really well. Came home a couple of weeks later. Was flying very well um, back at home with his family. And then he flew into the window at the medical school. Mm. And um, yeah, I got a call that he was that he had been found. Ugh. And so that really hit home for me. And. So I said, okay, enough thinking about this and, and saying someday when I have time, this is now. This was, a, for me, a very personal call to action. So um, it, it just put me into motion of um, getting in touch with the American Bird Conservancy, which is a 501c3 organization that works to um, decrease threats to birds in a lot of different ways. Um, but they have a big bird collision program. And so I got in touch with a um, woman who runs that and she was gracious enough to allow me to use their PowerPoint presentation and um, to adapt it to the needs of whatever audience I was working with locally uh, or the, you know, the audience in general, whether it was architects or builders or Audubon societies or um, anybody else. So I have been doing that for the last couple of years, trying to plant seeds about bird safe building design and have been um, monitoring some buildings in my area and working with the local universities 
with some success for getting some areas mitigated on campus to decrease the, the deaths from um, birds flying into um, some of the glass walkways on campus. So, so anyway, that's, that's really um, takes up a lot of my time between yeah. chasing falcons and uh, talking to people about bird safe building design. So that sounds really interesting. So there's certain windows that they're more attracted to fly into. And so what your, your job is to try to get these buildings changed in some way so they don't fly into those windows. Is that how it works? Is it yes. like a reflective thing or is right. it? It is, it is um, it's it. both a reflective thing and um, a see-through thing. Okay. So, um, so if, if you have an existing building, I think the first step is to, is to do monitoring and find out which of these windows, if any, are the problems. Okay. And, and then um, you can choose um, the areas that would be most suitable for mitigation. And that would be putting on some films. Birds will fly into, they perceive any space that is bigger than their body size as a potential passageway. So, you know, it's to create a pattern on a window that would alert a bird that this was a solid object and not a passageway. Can't fly through it. Hmm. Right. So there's a lot of products that are on the market that are available to do that. And if it's new building design, certainly windows could be chosen that are low reflective windows and that have a, um, a pattern that's already embedded in the window or the building can use some decorative grill work or louvers or, you know, there's other features that can be used that not only decrease glare and help with climate control, but make uh, a building safer for birds. Okay. So if anybody's really interested in kind of joining that work or getting more information, or is there somewhere that they could go to either assist in some way, like donate or just learn more about it? Well, um, the American Bird Conservancy is, the, is an international program, you know, that has a lot of information about that issue online and being a 501c3 any donations to them, of course, is, is very helpful. Yeah. Um, you know, if they are local, they might want to check with some of their local, you know, their local municipality or local Audubon Society and see if they're working on that. A number of different towns and cities in Michigan are working with a lights out program to decrease lighting during migration, during the spring and fall migration. Lansing just got certified as a Urban Bird Treaty, um, Bird Safe City, and Detroit has that designation as well. Ann Arbor has got Safe Passage, Washtenaw County. So there's a number of different um, areas around the state that have some active programs that somebody might be able to connect with in their local community. Okay, that sounds great. You know, I love birds. I do parrots at my hospital, so. I, I don't do a lot of wild birds, but that's where I got a passion for birds is because I always thought wild birds and birds of prey were so fascinating when I was younger and I decided I wanted to be a bird vet. So that's what I do oh, now. Good so, for you. Yeah, I see a lot of parrots. I don't get to see any of the wild ones or not very many anyway, but I do have a passion for birds. So this is super interesting to me. So I'm glad I learned about this and, and met you because this will probably spur me on to get into this issue at least a little bit. Anytime I'm excited. 
anytime I can plant a seed and get somebody interested, it, it makes my day. I bet. Yeah, it's great. I think it's amazing. All right. Well, I've really enjoyed talking to you. I think we really need to do this again. But is there anything um, that I didn't ask you that you wanted to talk about um, on the podcast today that we could talk about or any other advice you have for the, the people that are out there listening to us? Well, we certainly covered a lot of topics, so I can't think of anything. And, and I do know as being a coach that, that um, one of the strongest human tendencies that we have as people is to, is to give advice to people other people. And, and the second strongest is to resist any advice that people give us. So, you know, maybe I'm, <laughs> maybe I've already given enough advice in, in one podcast. Well, I really, I really love your no expectations, no assumptions, no regrets. I, I just think that's a really great little kind of sound bite for us to hang on to. In fact, I think I'm going to write that down and put it with my other things that I have hanging in my, on my refrigerator to remind me. I really well, think that you. that's excellent. Yeah. I think that's, just, that's, just quote me on it. That's <laughs> I absolutely will. I think it's amazing. So is there, if, if anybody's interested in learning more about you and your coaching program, is there a way that they can get a hold of you or that you'd like to, you know, put out on the podcast if, if anybody's interested in your, you know, your training or your coaching or anything like that? Um, certainly they're interested or they're, um, they're welcome to contact me. You know, the best way to do that is probably by email. Um, I do have, um, a much outdated website and, um, Facebook page. I'm, I'm not very good with the social media. I have to admit. Okay. But they could email you. I could put your email in the show notes. Sure. You can okay. do that. All right. I'll do that. If, if anybody's interested in asking you more questions about the bird stuff or about your personal training or about coaching in general. Yeah, I'd be, I'd be happy to communicate with anybody on any of those topics. And if awesome. they're interested in starting a, you know, a monitoring, uh, you know, in their community looking for bird collisions since spring migration is um, coming up in April and May. Um, it's just a pertinent and important time. I'm, I'm really happy to connect with people about that. All right. That's great. And I, I mean it when I say I think that um, you and I, with this conversation, have brought up some really good topics and things that we could probably go into deeper. And so if we want to do this again, I think it would be really amazing. Well, I'd look and, forward to that a lot. <laughs> yeah. So if anybody's out there on the out there listening to the podcast and there's anything that you would like us to discuss more or you have any suggestions for the podcast, please send me an email. And um, I just, I really think this was a good conversation. So I really appreciate you being here today, Gail. And um, anything else, any words of wisdom you want to leave us with? Well, uh, I don't think anything, but thank you so much for, All right. for taking the time and, and inviting me to connect with you because this was, uh, this was a lot of fun for me. And I, I feel like as a coach, I'm used to being the one that's asking the question. So that puts me. It feels um, weird, right? Yeah, it does. We'll have yeah. to have more of a dialogue next time. Or Absolutely. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If we just come up with a subject that we want to talk about, whether it's work-life balance or any of the things, I, I'm really fascinated by your health coaching because I think that that's something that I'd like to learn more about. So maybe we could do one on health. Maybe we could do one on work-life balance. So I really think that there's a lot of good things that you could share. So I'm excited. It was really fun. 
Well, thanks. I have fun too. Yeah. And don't forget if you're out there, if you need help, please reach out. That's why we're here. That's why coaches exist to help other people. And, and as much as we would, um, oftentimes need help ourselves. We all need coaching, but um, we would be happy to help with anything that's going on out there. So don't be afraid to reach out for help. I think that's one of the things that veterinarians forget about is that, you know, we all as humans need other people. And I'm sure you would agree. (laughs) Definitely. All right, Gail, thank you so much for being with me. I really appreciate it. And thank all of you for listening. Bye. Bye, Gail. Bye. Bye.